From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. The fire department, for instance, to buy fire trucks and fire hoses on the used market to save a few pennies because the fire chief has has a profit motive. No, you want them to have the best trucks, the cleanest trucks, the trucks that run, and the hoses that work. Because if they don't do that right, they're shaving costs there. Those that that gear might break down while your house is burning down, right? So you don't want that. You want them to have the best the best equipment. So fire stations and fire departments don't work well on a profit motive. Prisons are the same way. Welcome back to season six of the Miami Log Explainer the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. In the opening days of the new administration, President Biden took his first big swing at criminal justice reform with an executive order aimed at ending private prison contracts. Innocence Clinic Director Craig Trochino takes a wide look at the prospects. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Hey, good morning, Craig. Good morning. Always nice to have you on. Uh, So we start with the executive order. Um, What does it do? What does it not do? Um, Well, it's actually, uh, in my view, a pretty extraordinary uh, order. Um, And it's extraordinary because it it recognizes mass incarceration and identifies it not as a virtue, but as a problem in the criminal justice system. Um, you know, and it says that it is it, it, it's, it, it's significant cost. It's at a significant cost and doesn't make us any safer, which I think the data bears out. Um, it also shifts the focus from prisons, uh, from the prison system, from, uh, you know, warehousing, incarceration and punishment to rehabilitation and redemption. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is a, you know, a presidential declaration that that seems to uh, acknowledge that people in prisons are actually human beings and they might be worthy of redemption and rehabilitation. I see it as kind of a sea change um, in the way we're approaching corrections, uh, at least from the top down. Um, so, you know, it's nice uh, and beneficial to see the president saying that that people are worthy of redemption um, and that we want to do what we can to make them productive members of the society rather than warehousing them uh, indefinitely at $100 per person per day, which is what it currently costs in the federal system. Um, It actually takes us a little bit closer to, you know, the words of St. Francis, since yesterday was uh, Ash Wednesday, you know, where where there there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, for it is in giving that we receive and it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, right? President Biden's a man of faith. He understands this. And I think this order is part of that. You know, it also focuses on humane treatment, you know, declaring that, you know, prisons should be treating people humanely. That's another recognition of the basic humanity of the uh, of the folks in our in our prison system that we've put there and that we are stewards of. I think that's a necessary thing to say. Um, but the downside is, is I guess it really only applies to the federal system. Um, it mm-hmm. doesn't really apply to the states. Okay. Um, removing the profit motive from the prison equation was was a target of the Obama administration. Um, can you talk a little about the impact that had during that administration and how it changed under the, the Trump administration? Well, right. So, um, you know, in I forget what year it was, it was probably 2012 or so um, that uh, um, the President Obama 
was taking steps away from for-profit prison systems, uh, which I applauded as a good move. Uh, then, of course, when there was a change in administration, the Trump administration went uh, back into uh, uh, coordination with for-profit prison systems. Uh, fortunately, uh, President Biden recognized in that order that part of the problem of mass incarceration is because we have for-profit prison systems. Um, so it's 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 a it's a nice step back to I think sanity in in the uh, in the prison situation. Uh, you know, getting rid of for-profit. Um, uh, the for-profit system that we have. Now, look, there's nothing wrong with the profit motive in general in a capitalist system, right? But there, you know, it's necessary for capitalist organizations to to survive. Apple, Google, Exxon Mobil, they have to maximize profit. That's the whole game. But there are some things, particularly when it comes to governmental services, that profit motive and the free market are not the be-all, end-all, right? Um, because the easiest way to maximize profits is to reduce the costs that you're spending on your services. And that ends up making the services less robust, less efficient, less, uh, less there, you know, uh, to, to, you know, if you, you, you maximize profit to the extreme when services to another human being is, a, is, is part of, you know, you, you might be, you know, getting to, there's no there, there. Uh, anymore. Um, and so, you know, you wouldn't want the fire department, for instance, to buy fire trucks and fire hoses on the used market to save a few pennies because the fire chief has to have, has a profit motive. No, you want them to have the best trucks, the cleanest trucks, the trucks that run and the hoses that work, because if they don't do that, right, they're shaving costs there. Those that, that gear might break down while your house is burning down. Right. So you don't want that. You want them to have the best, the best equipment. So fire stations and fire departments don't work well on a profit motive. Prisons are the same way, um, you know, because when you have the need to, to maximize profit, you build more prisons to have more beds, to put more people in it uh, on an economy of scale, build more widgets in essence. Um, but that doesn't really work out in the long term. Uh, for prisons. I mean, for instance, Geo Group, which is one of the big uh, for-profit prison corporations. In 2019, their CEO made $5.7 million. Their C CFO made $2.2 million. Two top senior vice, pre uh, vice presidents made $1.3 and $1.8 million per year, respectively. And their marketing director made $1.3 million. That's $12.3 million for four people at the top of a corporation. Take a wild guess what the director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons makes. No idea. $180,605. Yeah. $180,605 per year, right? So you can't tell me that for-profit is the way to go, right? Because Bureau of Prisons yeah. does it better, they do it cheaper, and 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 they don't have to have a marketing division that goes around and tells people to send bodies to me. Right, no lobbying arm. Well, I didn't even get to that that person's salary when I was doing the research. <laughs> so, 
So what's next? Is, is Can Biden do more by executive order? Is there legislation, you know, uh, being cooked up or any idea where we go from here? Um, I don't know where where the legislation is going. Um, and I don't know what uh, President Biden has on his uh, on his executive order agenda with regard to criminal justice. I do know, and he's been on record for a while, saying that he opposes the death penalty. Um, uh, so I would like to see uh, a death penalty moratorium, at least he can he can easily do that and just declare that, you know, we're we're going to have a moratorium where there are no going to be no further federal executions. He could even commute those sentences from death to life without the possibility of parole, too. That would be a nice step. Um, I'd also like to see an end to mandatory minimum sentencing, uh, because those are the types of things that end up leading to mass incarceration. You've got, you know, where the judge judges who are sentencing have absolutely no discretion to sentence the person standing in front of them in open court, they must sentence to 20 years, 30 years life in prison, because that's what the statute says. Takes away all the sentencing authority and the discretion of the trial judge, who is in the best position to really do this um, and put it in the hand of the legislature. Um, I'd like to see an end to solitary confinement uh, as a practice. Um, you know, Amnesty International refers to it as a, as a, as a mechanism of torture. Um, I, I believe it's inhumane, uh, but we still use it. Um, and while I'm creating my wish list for Santa Claus on this, um, I, I, I would like to see um, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996 radically uh, amended and altered to give more authority to federal courts to address the abuses of the abuses, the constitutional abuses of state court judges in 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 uh, in, in trials. You mentioned that not, none of the federal actions actually slop into to state prison systems, so. How much is state versus federal part of of this equation of of you know death penalty, uh, prison uh, profit prisons, et cetera? Well, in in the in the executive order, uh, President Biden comes out and says there's uh, two million people in prison in the United States, which is an accurate an accurate number. Um, in fact, if you look at it, we we are the highest per capita imprisoner, um, if that's the right word, uh, in the world. We have. 5% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the world's prison population. Staggering. Um, uh, the vast majority of that 2 million is in the state system. Right? Be, uh, you know, so so the federal system, it's, it's big, uh, but it's not 50 states big. Um, and maybe there's a leading by example trickle down uh, on this, um, but the states who are already prone to doing it are doing it and the states who like for-profit prisons are you know will still have for-profit excuse me for-profit prisons i mean the for-profit profit prison corporations aren't going away because president biden you know uh signed this executive order they're just not going to make as much money off the federal government they'll, they'll still make uh you know the ceo will still make five plus million dollars next year from state from state right. coffers right um, let's widen out a, a little bit um, to some other areas. So, what are you? What are kind of the other trends you're seeing uh, in in justice reform, uh, and what's driving those changes? Well, there you know, there's many states have bills on their you know going through their respective legislative committees and so forth on 
on criminal justice reform from uh, there's several bills here in Florida um, proposing to do away with minimum, man, mandatory minimum sentencing. That's one thing you see around in a lot of different states. Um, one of the encouraging things that I've seen, a trend that I've seen over the last this last election, is the is the 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 I don't want to call it a wave because it wasn't that huge, but the trend that there are progressive prosecutors and district attorneys getting elected uh, around the country in places like Los Angeles, New Orleans, Washington, Texas. Um, you know, uh, progressive. Uh, I mean, progressive in the way that they're approaching prosec their prosecution function in a different way, from a more holistic way of how do I better the community as, a, as opposed to rack up conviction upon convictions. You know, the paradigm for years is I'm a great prosecutor because my conviction rate is 96%. Um, this group of, of, of individuals, um, I think their point of view is I'm a great prosecutor because look at how good my community's doing. My community is safe and prospering and thriving and people are getting educated um, and they're staying out of jail instead of putting them in jail. And I think that's a little bit of a sea change and a paradigm shift in the way the prosecution function works. That being said, um, there is pushback to that. Um, for instance, uh, for instance, Mr. Gascon, who was elected to the D elected DA in Los Angeles, came out of the gate with a lot of great ideas on, um, you know, ending mandatory minimum sentences, reviewing long-term sentences and not going and deciding that he wasn't going to pursue thing, what's called sentencing enhancements. These, these tiny, these tiny little, uh, uh, these, these other factors that take an, what's it would say a normal 10 year sentence and enhance it to a 20 year sentence or further, like three strikes and you're out laws. That's a, those, those are sentencing enhancement laws. And he said he wasn't going to do, he was ordering his prosecutors not to do that. Well, a couple of prosecutors, along with the district attorney's uh, union, sued him to stop him from doing that. Um, and his motion to dismiss that suit was denied. So it's going forward in L.A. County. So his own his own deputy assistant, uh, his deputy DAs sued him to block, you know, this what I thought was a rather progressive um, and bold position to take on him. So even, you know, even. You know, swimming sometimes swimming upstream is uh, is is fraught with with uh, perils. Right, right. Well, I don't want to let you go uh, without asking you about the final days of the last administration. So many described. You're gonna, you're gonna have to be more specific than that. <laughs> so many have described Trump's final tsunami of clemency orders as a money-driven, I don't know, reward sweepstakes or something. Um, but many on the list were actually nonviolent offenders whose pardons had long been percolating through the system. So were there more, air quotes, good pardons where the punishment didn't fit the crime, or were there more party favors for the rich and connected? Um, I didn't look at all of them, but the ones that made the news um, seemed to fall in the rich and connected category. Um, you know, people who were, you know, who were clearly convicted of crimes or pled guilty to crimes, uh, um, not that they had served any time or you know served too long. Um, so that seemed to have been um, uh, a little bit of. Uh, not what I would consider to be the proper pardoning function. 
uh, on on that um, to be doled out to uh, to friends. Not that that doesn't happen and hasn't happened in the in the past. It, you know, um, you know, Clinton did a couple that I wasn't happy about either. Um, uh, but this was a it seemed to be a pattern in practice. But what what struck me most about that time period and the the six months leading up to it was the the rush to carry out thirteen executions um, all while that was going on. Um, right. That seems that seemed to be um, that's what that's that's still the the thing that echoes in the back of my head about the the end of mm-hmm. that. Yeah, death machine. Well, cool. Ooh, I'm, I'm glad I like that. We, uh, yeah, we got together. Um, another dog friendly podcast. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> your time. Thank you. Always always happy to be here. Thanks, Chris. All right. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer for a whole new season of interpreting legal issues in the headlines. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Ugez. Today's episode is brought to you by the 2021 Global Entertainment and Sports Law Virtual Conference on April 8th and 9th. For more information about the gathering of top industry leaders from companies, sports organizations, and law firms, visit law.miami.edu.